Hello, I'm Ren Ferguson. I'm one of the ministers here at the Collinsville Troy Church of Christ, and I'm glad that you've joined us today as we are in Matthew chapter 18 here today. As I mentioned yesterday, there's something very interesting in this chapter, and it's actually at the beginning of, of the chapter in verses 1 through 6. Here we have the disciples arguing about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Greatest in the kingdom of God. And in fact, there's three different times that they argue about this. The first one, as is recorded right here, is also recorded in Mark chapter 9, and it's also recorded in Luke chapter 9. The second one is whenever they are on their way to Jerusalem shortly before Christ is put to death, and that one is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 20. And then the third time is recorded for us in Luke chapter 22 and in John 13, uh, which would have been the, the night that Christ was betrayed. So three times they have this argument about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This was something, of course, that stemmed from their lack of understanding or maybe just misunderstanding of what the kingdom was because they thought that the kingdom of heaven was going to be a physical kingdom. In fact, if you were to look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, they still, uh, before Christ ascended, still had that misunderstanding that there was going to be a physical kingdom. And so here they are, they are arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And, and Jesus in verse 2, he, he calls a child to him. And in verse 3, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So Jesus addresses this and he says, first of all, the greatest in the kingdom is one who is humble. The greatest in the kingdom is one who is like a child, who humbles himself like a child. And in fact, if you were to look at the book of, of Peter as well as there in the book of James chapter 4, we see just how important humility is to be pleasing to God. He says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Jesus is trying to teach that to his disciples, that they don't need to be boastful about their position in the kingdom. They don't need to be worried about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Because in all reality, the greatest in the kingdom are those who humble themselves, those that, as we talked about earlier, deny themselves and follow him. Those that give up the things that they need to give up in all humility so that they can serve God. So that's what we have there in verses 1 uh, through 6. A great lesson for us uh, to remind ourselves that we need to practice humility. And that, of course, just like it was with the disciples, is not something that always comes easily for, for many people, not something that comes naturally for many people either. And so working on that humility, working on our heart and our attitude to be like Moses in Numbers chapter 12. He was the most meek man, most humble man upon the face of of the earth. And then verses 5 and 6 kind of lead into the next 
uh, section, which is causing people to sin, causing, as he says here, children uh, specifically to sin. And as he says in verse 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Jesus is saying temptation is inevitable. It's going to happen. But, as he says, woe to the one through whom they come. Woe to the one that causes their brother or sister to sin. That's, that's a situation that none of us want to be in. That's a situation that, as Jesus is saying here, we need to avoid at all costs. There in verses 8 and 9, he says something very interesting. He says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is something we looked at whenever we were studying the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus says almost the exact same thing. And his point is, is to sacrifice whatever it takes to give up whatever it is that causes us to sin, to avoid those temptations. As he says, it would be better for us to enter lame or blind or crippled, enter into heaven in that condition rather than being fully functioning, having all of our limbs and, and eyes and everything, but to be cast into hell. Giving up the things that we need to give up to overcome temptation. That's not always easy, but it is something that we need to work towards and work on. Having that discipline, having that self-control, having that love for God to give those things up for Him so that we can spend eternity with Him in heaven. So that's uh, what he's discussing there in verses 7 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 14, he gives us the parable of the lost sheep. And most are probably familiar with this parable. This shepherd, he has a hundred sheep, but then one of them goes astray and, and he gets lost. Jesus says, would not the shepherd leave the ninety and nine and go find the one? And he says that that is exactly the way it is with the father. He says in verse 14, So it is, will not the will of my Father who is in heaven, that is, that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus is saying that he is there and, and, and he's seeking those who are lost. He is seeking those who have gone astray. And he doesn't want anyone to perish. In verse 13, he says, And if he finds it, truly I say to you that he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. In other passages we can look at, we are told that the angels in heaven rejoice when a sinner repents. When someone who has gone astray returns back to God, there is joy in heaven because of it. And that's what Jesus is trying to convey here with this parable. And then in verses 15 through 20, Christ gives us some very practical uh, commands. And it is, if someone were to sin against us, if someone were to wrong us, he tells us how to handle the situation. He gives us three steps. First of all, in verse 15, he says to go to the person that wronged us and speak to them alone. 
Don't involve anybody else. Don't broadcast it. And I think that that's so important because sometimes whenever somebody wrongs us, the first thing we do is we tell somebody else about it. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Go to the person who did the wrong. Speak to them first. And if they listen, that's great. You have gained your brother. But if they don't listen, then go tell it to two or three people. And bring them with you to speak to that brother that sinned against you. And if they listen, that's great. That's wonderful. And if they don't, the last and final step is to tell it to the church. And have those in the church go and and speak and try to encourage uh, that brother to correct the wrong. And as Jesus says, if at that point he still refuses to listen, then at the end of the verse he says, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. They were to withdraw their fellowship from them because they refused to repent. All of the steps had been taken, everything that was within uh, the individuals and within the church's power, everything that they could have done had been done, but that person still was unwilling to repent. And because of that, Christ says to withdraw from them. And then in verses 21, going down through the end of the chapter, we have the parable of the unforgiving servant. And we don't have a lot of time to get into all of the details of this, and I encourage you to read it. But the gist of it and the point is there in verse 35. He says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Again, Jesus in this parable uses the example of these two servants one of whom his master had forgiven a debt. And so he goes, he's debt-free, and he goes and he finds this other servant that uh, owed him a debt as well, a significantly smaller debt, but he still owed a debt. Well, the first servant was unwilling to forgive the second servant. And because of that, when the master heard about it, he rebuked him and punished him. And Jesus is saying that's the same way it's going to be for us if we refuse to forgive our brethren. If we don't have mercy on one another, God is not going to have mercy on us. James chapter 2 and verse 13 tells us that as well. This parable Christ gives to us to show us that we need to have mercy on one another, which goes hand in hand with what he talked about in verses 15 through 20. If anyone sins against us and they come and they try to make it right, we are to forgive them. And if we do, God will do the same thing for us on the day of judgment. So that is Matthew chapter 18. Thank you for your attention today. And please come back tomorrow as we look at uh, chapter 19. Thank you for your attention.